Good morning, vendors and non vendors alike, and welcome to the Republic City Dispatch, a radio program covering Nickelodeon's Legend of Korra series. This week, our first foray into the digital oasis finds Team Avatar discovering truths about Pai Show, the Red Lotus, and Nuk-Tuk fans of the Earth Kingdom. Who is joining Iway this week in the fog of lost souls? One of your hosts, Matt, Dave, Devendra, and Joanna. Hello and welcome to Republic City Dispatch. Yes, this is the first episode where we've gone completely digital. We used to be on public access uh, television, so you could have watched Republic City Dispatch. <laughs> I don't. Not many people know that, but we, you know they've they've decided to go another direction. We are officially one hundred percent digital podcast now, but we're we're happy to be here. with a Spanish dub, and they won't let. <laughs> anymore <laughs> it was a real disaster it was a real nightmare but we're back uh, i am matt patches i'm here as always with davindra hardawar hello hello joanna robinson hello and dave with a seven gonzalez radio hot man <laughs> okay and uh so we today we are talking about stakeout uh, what what number episode is this dave you probably know Oh man, number, I don't know. The most recent one? I was unaware prepared for that question. I thought I thought you would just have it. I thought that was your 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 game. Isn't well, it's number 9 out of 13. 9 out of 13. That's what I wanted to know. How close we are. We're, we're descending right now uh, in in Korra and things are being revealed finally. Um we haven't learned very much about Zaheer our big bad, but finally we are getting some information. We're the the the, the mist is uh, dissipating. We are understanding this man. Dave, what happened in the stakeout? Set us up here for a discussion. So- Korra and Team Avatar uh, track Iowa to the Misty Palms Oasis, where they stake out his room in order to entrap him during his meeting with Sahir. And after many games of Pie Show, Korra decides that she's tired of this stakeout and busts in on Iowa, who she realizes is meeting Sahir in the spirit world. So she goes into the spirit world after him and ends up meeting up with Sahir and learning the history of the Red Lotus and sort of what Sahir's future plans for the kingdom are. Meanwhile, Zaheer like talks out of his meditation and gets lava bender and water for arms to try to capture Korra's unconscious body. Mako and Berlin hold them off. Asami and Korra try to escape, but end up getting captured by the Earth Queen's forces. Uh, so before we jump into this conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who listens and has been participating uh, and, and talking back and criticizing and and theorizing about this show each week with us. Uh, not only have people been subscribing on iTunes and leaving very nice reviews of the show, which help, helps it get out there, um, but but we keep this conversation that we have on the podcast going on RepublicCityDispatch.com through your Tumblr reblogs and, and bl- you're basically writing blog posts about what we talk about on the show, and it's been amazing, uh, as well as jumping in the comments and talking there. And we end up drawing a lot of that and putting it back into the show. So it's symbiotic, uh, and we really appreciate it. So iTunes, reviews, and and jumping on the website to keep things moving. We love it all. Thank you. Um, to you guys about the stakeout. I've heard some, from some people that they thought this episode was a little slow, maybe after our huge battle uh, in the previous episode, and uh, all the revelations that we had about um, the people inside the Metal Clan who were helping Zaheer, and this one takes a little bit of its time till we get to the major revelations at, at the end. What, what did you think about this? I, for one, love a setup that's like the Old West. This is a great Western beginning. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I dug it, um, but mostly because I knew that uh, the way that Korra was, uh, this season of Korra felt a lot like the first season. I thought we were, our backstory was going to be a flashback episode. And I was really happy 
that we didn't, we got a conversation, and it was a conversation that lashed all the previous seasons of Korra together. All the books, you know, now have to do with one another because it turns out that Unalak was a Red Lotus and he just sort of like went off the reservation. And Zaheer and the Red Lotus's goals are very similar to Aman's goals from uh, season one. So for me, it's like I felt with the repetitive pie show games that maybe this episode was going to get slow, but what it did through dialogue made me enjoy it more than I think I would have liked like a flashback action heavy episode to, for, to serve this purpose. I have a question for you. Um, one of the commenters, uh, on the, on the Tumblr, uh, really remarked that they liked that Sahir had this long conversation with Cora rather than attacking her. Do we feel like he was actually interested in engaging in dialogue with her, or was it all part of the stall that was also part of it, or both? Well, I like that it was a double-sided coin. I think this conversation was necessary, and because of what Zaheer reveals, um, he's not just a villain. He's not just there to kick her butt, right? He He's there to convince her to join him in some ways. Uh, obviously, he could take uh, this opportunity to capture her in IRL, if you will. <laughs> um, but this conversation needed to happen, and it needed to happen as a conversation, not as a you know Monologue. exposition laden action scene. That's true right. to Zaheer, and and it, it makes it scarier. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's you know it's yeah it's it seems like what I like so much about this villain, and what I liked about season or book one's villain is you could totally ask yourself the question of just how much was this all a trap and how much was this actually cogently explaining his philosophy in life because he feels like he's in the right and therefore it doesn't matter if you know what his plans are because he's the the uh, the the unmoved mover if you will to try to loop more buddhism into it cuz i think that's i think that's where we might be going patches uh, that's opening up a whole can of worms. We'll get there in a second, but uh, I, I, I tend to agree. Also, when you say mover, I think of the movies in Korra, so I'm like <laughs> all confused. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, before we get too far into like Zaheer philosophy, I, I just did want to step back and talk about the beginning of this episode because I think there's so much to like. And as a fan of old westerns, especially, I, I just love that like Team Avatar come to town and and and. They go into this bar where all these people are just like, it's it's perfect Western, all these grimy dudes. It's awesome. Well, it's just so funny. I really like your interpretation of it being a Western, but I still stick by what I said last week, which is that it's also an Elmore Leonard novel. Or maybe not. Maybe it can be both. Or maybe Elmore Leonard novels are like So it's justified, Westerns. basically. <laughs> I'm delightful. My favorite show. Great. Yes, it's justified. Um, but yeah, the Misty Palms, I don't know. It felt, like I said last week, it felt very Florida to me. Um, and I, I thought it was great. And it's great when a show plays with a genre the way that, that the show does so often. So. Did we ever get any answers about the book drawer, the book in the drawer patches? Um, we did. We did actually get answers about that. So when I saw that, don't you, like, this is, this is the moment where in animation, there are no mistakes, right? Uh, we're lingering on this shot of a book that they pull out in their hotel room, and we know it means something. It's got to mean something, because they're holding on this shot. They accidentally find that. And somebody was saying that we have seen the book before. I think we saw it in book 
two. Yeah, we saw it in book two uh, in the episode Peacekeepers. Basically, I think it's a text. Someone was translating it as like the way to do or the, um, just the way to be. And it's almost like the Bible. Like yeah, there's like a, a, hotel. a Gideon's Bible. Yeah, the... you, would, you would just see the hotel, or the hotel Bible there, which I was just at a hotel and they, don't, they didn't have a Bible there. Is that not common anymore? Did they get rid of that <laughs> practice? Well, no, if you, it's still there. Yeah, sometimes Usually they put the Book of Mormon there because the Mormons send so this is So this hotels. is the Gideon's Bible of the Cora universe? Maybe, yeah. but it also looks like Bruce Lee on the cover, which I don't <laughs> the think Bruce is The Bruce Lee Bible? <laughs> I mean, why would, of course, that, doesn't that make sense? That the way to be in the Cora universe would be like Bruce Lee on the outside, mm-hmm. Nougaty Buddhist Center on the inside? <laughs> But it also makes me wonder if we're living, if this world exists within our own. I was, we were, before the podcast, Mm. we were talking about Stephen King and like the thing (laughs) with the Dark Tower books um, are that they're like some sort of weird variation on our own world because they'll like, it's post-apocalyptic-ish, but then they'll stumble upon a Texaco station and like everyone will be talking about it like it's a it's like a monolithic. Oh man! Yeah, well, she'll 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 be like book four ends with Cora falling on her knees and saying like you blew it up. Yeah, I, finding I have, the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> I have actual serious thoughts about this. Don't let me forget because when we start talking about Buddhism, there's there there's something that made me think that that's actually a possibility. But we'll. Uh, yeah, a part right. of me actually yeah. wishes this was Bruce Lee. Actually, you know, as the core of their philosophy, like um. Have you guys heard that water quote that they keep playing all over the place? Wait, the from one. Bruce Lee. It's it's very it's very famous, right? He it's it's something like uh, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, and it becomes the bottle. He's had this great like bending sort of philosophy for his martial arts. So, so that, that would, would make awesome. sense. It probably yeah. is Bruce Lee. I mean, these guys <laughs> must be Bruce Lee fans if they're going to be so oh, sure, into martial sure, sure. arts. They're, they're going to be total Bruce Lee nuts. Um, That's great. What, what, what do we think about Pie Show? This is a very important part of this <laughs> What episode. do we not think about Pie Show? I want to know what everybody thinks the Pie Show meant. Yeah. Well, the Pie Show is great for bottle episodes, guys. <laughs> no, wait That's a second. Totally awesome. Would you classify this as a bottle episode? Somebody I think else... We spent about 10 to 15 minutes. I think 10 minutes in that room. So, But can you, you have know. a bottle episode in animation? Dave and I were debating with someone on Twitter. When day, I mean, you when can. you can reuse a lot of the backgrounds, I think, when you don't have to like... <laughs> I don't know, sketch out a whole new environment and stuff. I don't know. It, it seems like it's a good way to have static in animation compared to all the like the crazy stuff we saw during the jailbreak. Well, and yet there's a huge last fight week. scene in the pool. Sure, sure. This is an but alias that was after, bottle episode. It was a really, it was a long, it was a long <laughs> time in that room. That's all it felt Th- like. This is me. an alias bottle it episode. Was a long where it wishes it could game. be a bottle yeah. episode, and they just can't help but write big action yeah. scenes. Uh, one of my favorite stories is. Uh, I was talking to one of the writers of Alias, who wrote the Spider-Man movie that came out this summer, which no one saw. Um, and he was talking about how Alias did a bottle episode that was going to just be an interrogation of, uh, what's her name, Sydney? Is Sydney the main character of Alias? Yeah. I can't yeah. Oh my god, yes. Sorry, yeah. yes. I've, uh, it's been a while. Um, but yeah, Sydney was just going to be interrogated the whole episode, but then they wrote the biggest action scene in the entire series. They wrote, they wanted to put a car chase into it, because it was getting a little boring, and then this huge car stunt where the car jumps off, um, I think it's like a Santa Monica uh, uh, boardwalk yeah Yeah. and and then she has to suck tire air to stay alive and it was a huge fight it was like the most expensive episode oh that was a great episode yeah that was a great episode but i'll tell you what the last season of alias really sucked a lot of tire air that is oh snap and burn that's a huge diss uh i'm sorry back (laughs) to the last just the last season (laughs) okay 
Dave, do you have a pie show theory? You were you were you were saying that you felt like it had deep meaning here. Oh, I mean, I think it, you could. Uh, it, what they said about it was general enough that I think you could look into any. Uh, basically like everybody uh, two different forces trying to fight for balance we could be talking about the red lotus we could be talking about the white lotus we could be talking about Korra and Zaheer we could be talking about just sort of the way the world is working where everybody thinks they're playing by the same rules but some people play by ancient rules and some people play by regional rules all these things just sort of kept going and because they kept hiding it in like this comedy scene with uh, Bolin it and they really spent a lot of time there i think letting your brain go off in those directions or at least they highlighted it enough that it i'm convinced it's a very specific metaphor for something oh for sure like they didn't ask Cora to standardize the rules by accident right you know, that is, that is what basically she's trying to do she's trying to standardize at least the way people think the way i don't know governments think the way their thought or their belief systems work in this world Something like that. Yeah. I thought, the, I thought the message was girls are better than boys. Wasn't that the yeah. underlying message? <laughs> I feel like you see that message in everything, Joanna. Just saying. <laughs> I see true, that message true. in everything. Sadly. <laughs> well, do you think it has anything to do? I mean, is it important that it's a Sami being the thoughtful one and uh, Bolin, the meathead bender, <laughs> kind of just being forceful and forgetting what oh, my show is all about is that some sort of deeper technology versus because haven't you been saying that asami represents technology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we're headed for this technology versus bender i thought showdown. less of it about technology and more about someone who's not a bender someone who or class since one is super rich and the other one is playing street pie show but <laughs> why would why would we want to encourage why would they put that on a pedestal in a way. Like, they're championing Asami here, right, for being thoughtful and methodical. She is winning. So why would you... Why It wouldn't be a class war. That seems really negative. It'd be more positive if it was like, look, not everything needs the brute force of bending. Sometimes you have to think. Brains yes. of a brawn. Well, I mean, yes, I agree. But, I mean, like... I, it could also be saying that, like, you think you're revolting, but it's the quiet aristocracy that's going to end up beating you by being slow because you're like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm have a horrible life. Revolt, you amon it up, and that those are those are bubble revolutions. They don't stick around. Not to get. I'm just saying. There's a lot of ways you can interpret this pie show game. So it, it's really craftily done. At the end of the book, I think we're going to look back at it and be like, oh, man, like somebody in the comments was like, you know, Asami says this and then jumps four pieces. And obviously that's Korra beating the Red Lotus. And I'm like, oh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Who knows? That's yeah. a very literal interpretation of this. I feel yeah. like I feel like it's a little broader than that. Uh, actually, a more universal. as that scene was happening, it actually didn't seem that subtle, too, because it seemed like such a. I don't know, such a reversal from the way the show has been moving so far. You know, we slow down, we see a board game. They really think about the board game. They get core involved. And it was pretty easy to see the metaphor there. So I'm sure we'll see it realized somehow. I actually wish it was a little more subtle or maybe like a game prolonged over over this entire season rather than cooped up into a single episode. Does that mean that Pabu is going to ruin it for all of them? Right. At the As end? always. Okay. Pabu will become Rocket Raccoon, guys. <laughs> that would be amazing. Although Pabu had some, I mean, he had a big Pabu moment had some good here. Moments. He had a lassie yeah. moment. Uh, yeah. Timmy didn't fall down the well, but almost, <laughs> pretty much. 
Uh, let's let's quickly just focus on the the action in this uh, episode before we get to the Zahir Cora conversation. Devendra, yeah. I would I would point to you here because you're you're the action. Yeah, I mean expert. it was. So the thing is, I saw this episode right after last week's, and last week's was phenomenal. That you know, last week's had one of the best uh, giant action set pieces, not only in like TV, but I think among movies this year, it was just phenomenal. Um, so this one, yeah, we get we get a water bending fight, and it's it's fine. It just didn't feel like it lived up to what we had last year, last week. I guess that makes sense. And I also think um, setting this in a desert environment too. I'm not sure. Maybe you can chime in here, Dave. But it also feels like. Oh, deserts are such an easy way to animate as well. Like just a very nice, uh, boring background to have. It felt very Dragon Ball Z because that's why they always ended up fighting in the middle of the desert or the plains because they're not, they're, the backgrounds didn't have to be that detailed. They're not in a desert in this episode. They're in desert town. They're in Misty they're in, Palms they're in the Oasis. Courtyard for that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fight. That's what I thought was very Western about this. It's not. It's kind of man with no name. The Clint Eastwood, the classic mm-hmm. Sergio Leone. Like we're going to Town Square to have a gunfight kind of throwdown, um, mm-hmm. except at a pool. I also liked, yeah, cool. I, again, like I was at a hotel this past week, and I was at the pool, and I was in a courtyard. I'm like, that's that's a, such a good setting for a fight. I, could, I, could, I, I was watching the episode again, but against a horrible Los Angeles hotel, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> biding my we, time. We, um, we talked last week about the way they have to choreograph fights that are not just kicking and punching, but integrating all the different bending techniques and how they combine. And we had two of those things here with the water bending being augmented by the presence of the pool. So you got that really cool thing that she does with the ball of water and Bolin. Yeah. Um, him and, up. It was scary. Yeah. And then, um, and then you've got, you know, Bolin saying that he's just giving the lava bender ammunition, which I also thought was really interesting and great. So, um, they really needed an airbender in that fight, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, to help them. So, or an avatar, you know, whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned or an avatar because people, I've seen people complaining and I would, I would classify it as complaining. I'm sorry, everybody. But, uh, that she hasn't, that Cora hasn't been using her avatar state since picking it up. Um, it's been a very rare thing and she could just be slipping into avatar state and blowing everyone away. I think I feel like that's against what Core is all about, especially considering this season, where th- where where thoughtfulness goes so much further than uh, brunt power. Yeah, and I mean she hasn't really been in a situation that she can't ha- like that she would have needed to go in the Avatar state with, and except for last week, and she was unconscious. Like I don't, I don't. I think it's sort of mm-hmm. a little bit too much to, you know, try to kill the Dai Li or something. Like that's a step too far. Uh, so I don't think we've seen her because she hasn't actually fought the Red Lotus yet, if I'm correct. Ever right. we've just yeah. seen, we've yeah. seen them take out like Zuko and attack the Metal Clan and whatnot. But yeah, I, I mean, Korra's Korra is still, I think, um, emotionally impulsive when it comes to her fighting. So I hope to see you know, her sort of go at it full avatar. Right. I keep forgetting that. So, the, yeah, the Pabu, the Pabu moment was actually last week. It's all blurring together for mm-hmm. me because she was passed out and they captured her. Right. Week. And this yeah. week she was passed out because she was meditating and she, she <laughs> ran away. <laughs> well, yeah, so they're saving up their big Korra 
fight stuff for the end to make it more spectacular, question mark. Um, the other thing is, I was going to say that in reaction to people thinking this episode was slow. I don't know that I can judge that because I watched it in tandem with the previous weeks. Mm-hmm. And so, which was so exciting and action-packed. And then yeah. it felt fine for this to be a slower episode because it was paired with that the way that it was presented to us. I have a I have a thought experiment for everyone who thought this episode was slow. What next time you watch this episode, immediately watch Civil War Part One from from <laughs> Book Two immediately afterwards because that's what a slow episode looks like. Yes. This one this one was really nice, and it had lots of interesting moments. Even though I I, I don't approve of uh, putting Pabu in a bad mood the whole time. But that that that's that's okay. I mean, it was not, I would like more pop moments. I just don't think he has to, you know, be ripping the heads off dolls slash attacking little spirits. <laughs> oh, there's so many spirit moments in this in this episode. The spirits seem to be they're, they're saving the day left and right because the spirits saved Janora. They sent her message and got Boomy to go get her in um, two episodes ago or three episodes. Um, and now the spirits are, are tipping off Korra and Asami in this episode. Um, and, and yet we've always been wondering, like, why are the spirits out? Like, what is the point? They haven't really been surfacing very much now that she's opened the portals. Um, but they seem to be assisting her. They're still at odd humans like we see you know one of them get kicked out of a place when uh, Mako and Bolin are undercover like you know no spirits in here whatever and then one bites Bolin when he like tries to put his finger in its mouth which I don't know why you would do that but I guess it serves him right but yeah it's like they're here and the connection to the spirit world's open but we don't have any of our culture that honors the spirits we've seen because we're in the earth kingdom, which I guess is notoriously not religious. It seems, uh, they're more, you know, heathens. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I kept, I, I expected at the end of last book that, you know, some crazy stuff would happen with the spirits being super to everybody, but I, and they just seem like pretty things that are happening in the background right now. Yeah. And mostly small, like mostly the small spirits are sort of darting around and we've seen a couple, uh, larger size ones, but um, for the most, like, where are the bigger spirits? Where are they chilling? <laughs> where are they hanging out? Maybe in the <laughs> desert, maybe in the open areas. You don't have giant <laughs> animals hanging out in town and, you know, in real life, right? There's no, like, bears walking around New York City or something like that. So it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Actually, there are. I, if you've never been to New York, fun fact, just lots of bears walking around. Uh, and, uh, oh, fun fact. While, while we were talking about the inn and kicking out spirit animals, the voice of the innkeeper is Andrea Romano, which I don't know if people stay for the credits, but Andrea Romano is this legendary voice director um, who has been working on all of Korra, and I'm pretty sure she did Avatar Last Airbender, but she does all the like DC animated stuff, and she, she is a legend in the animation community. I don't know if I've oh. ever seen something with her where she actually performs, but she... She was playing the the innkeeper in this episode. Doesn't it? Was she at the Comic Con panel we were at, Patches? She definitely was because she led a live reading of yeah, a script. I think, yeah, I think we've we've seen her read. We've seen her direct. We I don't know if we've ever seen her read. Didn't she do she, a? I don't remember. I think but, she read the the direction, the like script direction to set up uh, Janet Varney and and Co. Yeah, she is just amazing in how she's makes these people interact with each other and lets PJ Byrne do his stuff and everything. Right, easily and the most like, underappreciated role of of a 
animated show. A voice actor director. Yeah, I don't even think about it. I think that I always think that they just stick them in a booth <laughs> and say, "Do it ten times, different ways each time." Yeah. And then we do they all together. record together, by the way, like anime, or do they still record individually for the voices? I, I think they still do individually. Yeah. I don't know because I think they recorded books two through four all at the same time. Uh, so it seems like that might have just been an ongoing process of bringing people oh in over and over again. Yeah. I mean, we'll know more once we, you know, get out of fact mm-hmm. airing than people tell us things. <laughs> tell but. us the stories. I feel like on the book one Blu-ray, they may have mentioned that certain scenes are filmed together and certain mm-hmm. moments are can just be done individually. So... Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Somebody, somebody on Tumblr has like every single extra on the Blu-ray logged, so they'll they'll tell us. They'll deal with <laughs> that's it. something. Yeah, that's always struck me about American animation, right? Because it seems to make sense. You get all your actors together; you, they can all bounce off of each other and have something that sounds a little more natural. And I think that's one of the things that always pushed me more towards anime and the the great voice acting work there. Mm-hmm. You know, you see something like Neon Genesis Evangelion, and the insanity that that show goes to would be difficult to do if it was just you alone right. in a booth. So yeah. I think that's what makes movies like Rango or Fantastic Mr. Fox kind yeah. of exceptional, right? They don't yeah, yeah. do the traditional Fantastic stuff. Mr. Fox when they were like on a farm. Right, like running recording around. Recording it on a farm, yeah. Performing. Um, not to get too far off topic, but in Guardians of the Galaxy, did they... Um, when did Bradley Cooper record his dialogue? Oh, way after the fact. Way after. Yeah, yeah. way after. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's so James Gunn's kind brother, of incredible that it worked. Sean Gunn, who was right. on Gilmore Girls, he yeah, performed sure. Rocket the <laughs> Raccoon on set, and I yeah. think did all the dialogue there. And then Bradley Cooper comes in after the fact to star it up, if you will. Yeah. See, that's that's what I thought. But when I was when I was watching, it, I was very impressed how seamlessly like the interactions. So I'll I'll attribute that all to Kirk. Good job, Kirk from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> I want to throw in a counterpoint. Not that I necessarily agree with it, but when I have this conversation with people talking about animation, the thing that always comes up on the opposite side is Archer, which is impeccably timed, and none of those people are ever in the same room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like it, Archer is all about the, the timing of the escalation of the dialogue, and so they need to be able to place it very specifically and whatnot, and it works with that team, but but that's really like the only time that I've liked to show that was recorded individually better than I've liked to show that was recorded all together. Well, that's a testament to the writing and I, and also to the uh, voice direction to what Andrea Romano does on television shows. Um, it don't, they don't need to be together. And if the writing's there and if the emotion's there and if you have one person who understands the entire script and who has a sense for actors and how they can meld, that you really don't need to do that. And that, which means Cora can get great talent for all the voices. You know, I don't, if you had to record in person, um, JK Simmons would not be on this show, right? He's got <laughs> a lot of things to do. Um, Henry Rollins is very busy, people. <laughs> Henry Rollins is jamming somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but, but I kind of disagree with that only in that I view acting as. I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of acting you're encouraging, but doesn't so much of of great acting come from the give and take of a performance and you discover reactions based on a line <laughs> read from someone else. So in acting this Acting is in, reacting. As well, drama fine. But like but still that means that Andrea Romano, whoever is directing, is complete has ironclad control. Cause she's like, No, no, you have to react this way because we've already recorded this person's reaction is this way. So this is how you know. Read as written. Don't put too much of your own spin on it. 
right? I mean, there's got to be a certain degree of pickups. The nice thing about the animation process is you record the voice track to uh, some storyboards, maybe, or maybe even you don't even have that. You just have the voice track. But then, like, the, one of the last things to be animated is the lip sync. So you come back and you figure out if you could, you know, uh, change things or whatnot. Notoriously, The Simpsons, its first few years, would change lines, would plus up jokes like a week before it aired, once it came back from the Korean animation studios, because that lip sync was just so sloppy to begin with in the first few seasons. So I think, like... Right, it's not a, it, one, it's not a one recording and out gotcha. process. Right, right. Okay. It's not like here's this person's line you're reacting to because you're going to have 12 readings of that line. So it's more, I guess, like finding a discovery in it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much is like acting or, or, or reacting when it comes to scripted animated material. I think, you, I think in scripted animated material, you get a chance to act and react. Because mm-hmm. of how the process works, because everyone will lay down their lines and then people will come back and lay down their lines again in a different yeah. way. And then you'll, if you didn't hear Henry Rollins the first time, if Janet didn't hear Henry the first time, then she'll hear him the second time or vice versa or whatever. So I think it's kind of a, a fluid process that, where, where Andrew Romano can pluck the best or shape that performance over multiple uh, sessions. And that's, that's the beauty of it. That's why it's still true acting. Yeah. Okay. I will right. say David Faustino is my favorite cast member for his pain grunts uh, in terms of voice acting. <laughs> I'll have to pay attention to Maka. <laughs> it's like you could, you could hear the air leaving the bottom of his lungs and rushing out. <laughs> of his throat. So good job, David Faustino. And and Mako and Bolin get some of those in this episode oh, for plenty. sure. They get the, the yeah. poo beaten out of them. Mm-hmm. It was actually it was actually refreshing to see that. I don't think we really see people get too hurt when uh when <laughs> yeah, they that is these. No, it's true. Like people get knocked into walls all the time or like throw or dr- they're drowning or they're hit with a giant rock and then they stand back up and they're like, "Ow, that that hurt. Why did you do that?" And then they keep fighting. But here they get beaten up. Yep. They're cap- captured now. I'm it's going to be Yeah. I but I um no, I'm not <laughs> you're not. Bad. You're not scared. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about Zahir and Cora. They went to the spirit world. They had a very nice conversation. We learned something about Zahir. What, what are you getting from Zahir now? How how did this episode complicate your guys' thoughts on this big bad? And maybe in comparison to the past two seasons, Dave, you mentioned Zahir being like a mon, and I would totally disagree with that. I think, but uh, I would like to hear more on that idea and, and maybe how. In this pantheon of villains, villain history, how Zaheer might fit into it for you guys? Oh, I guess I got thrown to me first. I, it's, I like the idea. I, don't, I totally get where the Red Lotus is coming from because it was weird for me, even in book one, to see like the White Lotus like standing guard. Because it's like when we left it, they were like the best of the best, the White Lotus was. They came together... To you know, defend Bossing Say during the uh, while Aang was battling the Fire Lord, and it was like all these old masters that we'd seen throughout the uh, the series, and so it's weird to then I, then we saw them and they were just sort of like guards for Baby Cora, and it seemed weird to me, and so I totally get the idea that like no, we've become this subservient thing that like basically is nation. We're we're a nation. We're support nations, like a traveling, you know, super weapon, 
that's the White Lotus's new job when he just wants to throw it into disarray. Uh, it made sense to me. Yeah, well, isn't that interesting then? That and isn't that true of all? Okay, I don't know that I want to speak to like political movements, but you, you know, can, when you, you can have... speak broadly without offending anyone, <laughs> I, and I think it's well, important because it does uh, raise those questions. I mean, Cora is confronting politics and religion. I think you have to go there a little bit. So, so often, right? Revolutionary forces become, you know, the enforcers themselves, or the or or just become just toe the line of a new of a new regime. That's that's the cycle, right? And so. Not having watched the original Avatar like you guys, I don't want to speak too much to it, but it makes sense to me that there would be a, a fracture and a dissatisfaction with a, a tamer, more status quo revolutionary force, if mm. that makes sense. Or Did there end up Patches being a historical parallel to this Red Lotus mini-faction? Uh, I'm I'm not so sure about that. I need to look into that deeper. That was not my search this episode. Um, looking for some historical evidence of like rebellion brewing underneath. Uh, I think you find many instances of that, right? Any coup, essentially, but motivated by like spirituality. I'm not so positive. Um, I did want to ask you about the promise. If you saw any parallel to the promise before going into my spiel, the the comic book. Oh, Ang's choices in the promise about because that's all about what um, kind of government being overbearing or trying to set up establishment in the face of uh, an establishment gone awry. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely connected. I'm interested to see if we get any more backstory. Um, like Zahir named the first member of uh, the Red Lotus, uh, Zai Zai Bao. Right. Zaiba. Yeah. And it was weird because he dropped like a real name in there. So I'm like, oh, what what am I not reading? Like, should I jump into the third Dark Horse comic now? Because it seemed like a really specific name to bring up and not bring up again. So I, w- I went back and I looked. It's not a like a promise. I, I don't think there's any White Lotus that shows up in the promise that I could tell. Um, because that it's at that point, uh, who is a... That that would be more in the search, and we get to see a little bit of Iroh in his tea shop, but not really learn anything about him being part of the White Lotus, which he is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry that my answer was a non-answer. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe no, listeners <laughs> out there can see kind of relationship between the promise and what's going on right now in Korra. I, I think if there's something there, but... If we've heard Zai Bao before, and I'm just forgetting i would love to be reminded i don't think we've i I imagine that mentioning zaibao is 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 looking ahead to so that he can Yeah, according to the the wiki he's only referenced in this episode okay all of the references are from this episode so So we have like uh like zaibao guru lahima he's naming all these people that are his spirit zahir's spiritual influences and I'm wondering how much we're going to interact with that or if I'm just supposed to take that as like, I don't know. Well, like, I think we're still missing a backstory beat from Zaheer, right? We want to know how he went awry. And if I'm thinking about Guru Lahima, I'm thinking about either, uh, and this is where I, I just felt down the wiki rabbit hole or I tried to, you know, <laughs> Guru Lahima is either Buddha or he's Laozi who wrote uh, the Tao 
Tao Te Ching, well, which is the Taoist text um, back in like what, the fourth, they don't even know, fourth or sixth century BC, somewhere around then, Lao Zi became the kind of founder of Taoism. And again, he's just like an ordinary guru type, uh, which I could, that seems what, seems to be what Guru Lahima is all about. He's written these texts and perhaps um, like Buddha or Lao Zi has been not misinterpreted, but extrapolated by Zahir. Uh, as I was reading about Taoism, and I really want mm-hmm. people to uh, to it, help me with this with this study, because I'll tell you what, you can't learn Taoism in a day, or or you can't learn about Buddhism in a week, trying to like scarf all this stuff down and really in, kind of filter it through Korah. Um, but you, you start to see parallels between what Zahir is chasing and perhaps the uh, overarching. Uh, methodology of what being an avatar is all about and kind of this mm-hmm. whole balance thing when you start quoting uh, the Tao Te Ching when, and you know one of his big quotes is like life is a series of natural and spontaneous changes red flag uh, don't resist them the on- that only creates sorrow let reality be reality let things flow naturally forward in whatever way they like um, and, and I, I keep thinking about the, the, the Tao Te Ching as references to technology in a way that technology may bring kind of a false sense of progress to society uh, and how forgetful we can be of what true progress is. And I think a lot about that in this season. Uh, why, are we, why do we keep going to Varric and the Magnets? Or why do we keep talking about uh, the monorail that's going to be in the Metal Clan? How technology... <laughs> It makes us think that we're getting ahead with life when really it's escalating us out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Dao De Jing's whole thing is that heart, um, it's, it's reaching this state of harmony or Wu Wei, uh, a state of non-doing, which is what it's really translating to. And uh, I think that's what anarchists have really taken to, why they regard the Dao De Jing as... Uh, as kind of a quintessential text because they don't want people to be doing anything. They want them to just be living, and they often relate it. I saw one person relate it to, like, the planets. The way planets revolve around the sun, they just do, right? It's effortless. Um, The forces of nature are controlling them or pulling them around the sun. Uh, uh, The Earth doesn't have to, like, go on a stroll in rotation or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not totally anarchical because, uh, but I mean, it wants us, the Tao Te Ching wants us to avoid war and laws and taxes, which seems to be what the Earth Queen is all about, right? She is employing, mm-hmm. she's going too far with this state of government. So um, it can totally be misinterpreted. And, and if you want to rebel against all those things, you might become uh, Zahir. And I don't think Zahir is embracing the lousy Dao De Jing model, um, and and that's what I started thinking. This is really when my mind blew up when I started thinking <laughs> about Thoreau and transcendentalism and how that is kind of related to um, Taoism and how Thoreau was kind of promoting back in the days of of the 1800s and when he was rebelling against slavery um, and with poll his, taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, exactly. With anarcho pacifism. Um, you know, Thoreau wasn't paying his taxes for like weeks or, or months, or he didn't pay taxes for six months once. And he was like, you know what? I'm the I'm just not going to do it because I don't care for the government, and the government isn't is um, 
backing slavery and I cannot possibly do this. And it's clearly a bad establishment. This whole thing that we're supposedly supposed to live under and keep is the glue to this world can't possibly mm-hmm. live under that. So he found, I mean, civil disobedience was a huge part of his agenda and I mean, yeah. influenced Gandhi and all these people. Um, and I often wonder how this is going to escalate for Cora. Um, can Cora, right. can Cora be civil disobedient in a way? How can she possibly pick a side here or does she have to walk away from everything mm-hmm. because clearly well, I mean, here is is not not civilly disobedient he is a a right and he's not an anarchist as many people on tumblr have, have have pointed out there is a large contingent of anarchist tumblers out there mm-hmm. who are saying zahir is not a, a anarchist he is he's just anti-state there's a lot of other factors that go into anarchy and that's another that's a thing that i could not even begin to research yeah. like the abcs <laughs> of anarchy and all that text about what you know it's semantics really but i think he is a but buddhist the- <laughs> anarchist in a way the question story-wise though is we've seen all these that's obviously not the way that, that this book or even this series is going to end with no leadership whatsoever. You don't um, think that's possible. I, I don't think that that's where they're going to go. Uh, but we have seen in in the president and the Earth Queen and maybe even Sue because she didn't really know what was going on in her own underneath her own nose in her own uh, city. We've seen these faulty leaders. We talked a little bit about this last week. And also maybe Tenzin a bit, but he's learning, but still Tenzin not being a great leader. So who is going to rise up to be our example of a good leader? And the obvious answer is Cora. But, you know, is that is that the fate we're heading towards, the an Avatar-run society? Because I really don't think, and maybe I'm just underestimating this Nickelodeon show, but I really don't think this Nickelodeon show is going to end in no leadership whatsoever. We are all benign planets sort of bumping around doing our own thing. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the big thing, right, is that Zaheer has this very specific worldview and he's somebody who's read these texts and lives by them, whereas Korra, who, whose existence, you know, is kind of owed to all these things that have happened in the past, we've never really seen her even think about these things or talk about these gurus. So I think that's the really interesting transition here, right, or the interesting conflict, is that Korra is trying to help the world try to, uh, I don't know, try to live together, especially now that she opened up the spirit realm and everything. But Zaheer actually has, like, he has, you know, a game plan. He has a book that he thinks this is the way things should work. Uh, Cora has no clue, and she doesn't really have, she's kind of just making it up as she goes along, and she's not really listening to the wisdom of her ancestors or to the former gurus and stuff. So I think that's a really interesting thing right now. Uh, I We talked about the idea of, like, the one-world avatar government. I don't think it's going to get to that point, but I do think, you know, we're going to see her take on more of a leadership role than she has in the past. Yeah. I could definitely think so. I don't. I mean, I can sympathize with Zahir. I can sympathize with Iman. Right. I can sympathize with these social justice people. But the show puts them in parallel to horrible acts. Like I'm pretty sure I was dead. I, I'm pretty sure I was dead. <laughs> like that is that's a cold thing to do to a person. His body is just going to rot away in that. Right. We can't Missy be Palms teams Hotel. here. Yeah. Right. Like they very specifically had him kill a person and then keep the avatar talking while they attempted to basically do like the same thing that Cora's friends. So as much as his thing makes sense, we're not supposed to be on his side. He's still the villain, but everything's been subtle enough. And the way he sort of brought up a lot of Haman stuff and then also brought up very specifically that Unalak was sort of like the black sheep of this red Lotus thing. 
I'm not sure that we're going to wrap up this. I, we might end this book with a leaderless society. And then because we have one whole other book, why not? Why keep uh-huh. us with one villain? We might have there's enough pieces in the on the table for the world right now that I would watch like World War Avatar for that seems book like four. A, what it's going to have to be. But I still don't know how that can resolve. Right. Or does the whole world I keep I, I alluded to this earlier in uh, the episode that there's a there's a Buddhist cosmology uh, cosmological idea of kalpa, which is like that the world can only exist for so long and that it has to like end in mass extinction and reboot in some ways. And that's a really dark idea for Korra to ever tackle. But like, what is the option <laughs> here? How can it possibly have another outcome? Like, she cannot pick either side. She can't align herself with the Earth Queen, who is morally corrupt, and she can't really align herself with Zaheer, who makes a lot of sense uh, because of what she wants, harmony. But, I mean, clearly he's he's a violent human being who will go to no end to destroy, and she just is too much of a humanist to be able to do that. And I wonder if the world can only implode if, like, the Avatar has to swoop in, destroy the whole world in some sort of, like, defining uh, like <laughs> biblical ending, and then reboot. And now it's our right. world, see? That's how, that's what I was really getting to. That, well, uh, get this. We live in the Post-apocalyptic Avatar world, guys. Come on. That Who's would be, with me? That would be pretty cool. But then it would be also really sad because we've seen pre-apocalypse. It would also be Korra failing completely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so instead of like the Book of Eli, it would be like the Book of Bruce Lee or oh, whatever. Oh, oh. oh. That would, oh, that would that, rule. Okay, fanfic it up, guys. Off you go. <laughs> Um, I, it's goggles for everyone. Aren't the other two leaders like basically related, or like the the Desna and Eska are the Northern Water Tribe rulers, Southern Water Tribes, Tanrak, and now Tenzin's the Air Nomad. So I think she might accidentally pick a side. Well, that's it's, so. Uh, one of our users, Bobbity Hobby, wrote about how Tenzin keeps referring to this new air. Uh, nomad culture or, or the, these new airbenders as the air nation kind of setting him up as a leader for this new uh, part of society and that he will be a target of Zaheer and that could really challenge Korra if, if Zaheer thinks Tenzin needs to die. Hashtag Tenzin dies. Tenzin dies. Or, or Berlin. Or, you know. No, it's Tenzin. Definitely. Tenzin. Tenzin. For to make the most sense. For loving this show, we predict people are going to die on this show. I think well, what's, a few minutes ago, we just said everybody was going to die because the Avatar yeah. wipe out. Well, all. what's interesting is that we do have like Korra's actual father is a character on the show, but don't. But it's obviously going to have more emotional resonance if Tenzin dies for the viewers as well as. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In this state for Korra, so yeah. But then I think if that, Tenzin that's... dies, like if anyone important to her dies, the hands of Zaheer or the hands of this mission, she's going to. She's going to have to put an end to Zaheer, which I don't know if that makes sense for the Avatar or what that outcome is. Does she have to? Does she have to? I think that would be the ultimate lesson for her to uh, restrain her impulsiveness. Like everything in the world, everything in her body is telling her, like if that happens, would tell her to kill Zaheer. But I I don't know. Her true enlightenment would be moving past that. Right. Or like moving past it all, right? Mm -hmm. I I keep thinking of Toph, who we know is on this kind of spirit journey just walking the earth, right? Could yeah. that somehow, I mean, Toph seems like a character who could make one last resurgence before the end of the series because she's been she introduced yeah. in, in the Lynn backstory. But if Lynn's on the, just walking away and roaming the earth, could the Avatar be the same way? Just like, I cannot be involved with any 
politics. I can't be involved with the world. I can exist in it, and I will come to the aid of those in need. But like, maybe she needs to walk the earth and and kind of turn her back to this in a way that she did to President Raiko and Republic City at the beginning of this season. I'd probably be good for her. I don't know if she can. I mean, her mental health. You're right. Yeah, especially you know if she attaches herself to this new air nation, just in the fact that like they're extinct. No, let them uh, let them get together. This is all good and whatever. And then it's like, oh wait, but we still have to be one of the four nations because that's how the world is. And she, they're going to become you know what they what they were before, little islands with very strict monks living on it and some servants that were very into meditating. And I don't, I don't know if the world needs that. I think the world grew beyond the airbenders uh, in so many generations. But do we, uh, do we think that we're going to see an outcome from, there's only four episodes left. Right. I could very easily see the earth queen being toppled. That's an easy bad guy. You know, like we can all agree, even if we don't believe in, I don't know, anarchy or, or whatever more specific term you want to use, we can all agree that the Earth Queen right. should not be ruling that. Well, Mako and Bolin are probably going to team up with the Red Lotus to infiltrate the Earth Kingdom, Ba Sing Se, and, and beat down, right? It's possible. After after all that they've done, like Mako and Bolin strike me as less likely to ally with the Red Lotus than Korra, just because they, they are very... Choice. Well, that's true. Well, right if they now. know that... If they figure out that Korra and Asami have been kidnapped... Like, oh, that's true. And then they okay. need to get into Bossing Say, and mm-hmm. that's they're all their family lives in the poor outer circle. It, it seems like they might get on board if the single goal is to take down the Earth Queen. So if that's you know a short term goal. That's not going to be the next four episodes. Then what do we do? We have like an unlikely alliance. We rescue Koronasami. We haven't seen who- any of the sandbenders that were in the trailer. Yeah, so- there's a trailer where they're like sand cam- catamaraning. Across yeah, the land. So we're gonna... Oh, you mean the people that Su Yin spent time with in her teenage years? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, Su Yin was in a circus with the Red Lotus? Wait, that's a crazy internet theory. Well, she well, was. No, also... but she was in the Sand People. Yeah, she spent time with the Sand members. There's... All coming together. Though there's this picture floating <sighs> around of, of Su Yin in the circus, and uh, I showed you guys. But is it is it yeah. crazy or is it plausible? Well, last... threw this idea out, and now I'm wondering. Last week, someone brought up to me, I don't remember on which digital media, I'm sorry, person that I'm going to shout out, but that, uh, that it was like a compressed sand, sandbender art pot that uh, Bolin moved accidentally in Iways. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. So on it's that. like, yeah, all, it's like all the Suyin, Suyin's got to be Red Lotus. I just, there's... It's been really convenient for her to fight with Lynn, and I think we all enjoyed that enough that we haven't seen her moving behind. It's like we oh, have, no, we've uh, seen it. We've been we calling have, it out, man. We have. On I just art wise, but yeah, like even like even like this one, like it seemed really nice at the end of last week's episode for her to be like, "No, Cora, I'll take care of Lynn." But then having a whole week in between those two things, now it seems sinister. Like. No, I, I let the Avatar go, you know, to chase uh, <laughs> people by herself. And it's like, oh, man, Suyin, uh, when it... My crazy yeah. theory, you're, you're coming on board. I can feel it. it. If Varric shows up with a magnet suit to take down Bossing say, and uh, yeah, I think also at the Comic-Con panel, the guy who voiced Varric says at some point Varric's going to have a moment to talk about his past, and it's really touching. 
So I feel like Suyin is going to reveal herself to be Red Lotus to take down the Earth Queen in the next few weeks. Where we go after that, I honestly have no idea. Do you think Suyin's motivation is Red Lotus, uh, or do you think she wants to install herself as the new queen because she will be a more benign kill for everyone, you know, <laughs> I mean, do what moves you sort of leader? I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Either way, I, I wouldn't mind two episodes of that and then two episodes of Toph coming back and being like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's a direct quote, I hope. <laughs> All right, this has gotten very deep. Why don't we wrap up by telling people about uh, what we really liked in this episode, little things that uh, may not have been discussion-worthy, per se. Cora does the I have my eyes on you when they're exiting the bar at the beginning, which you could put together with when she made a face at Lynn in book one and Sokka saying Team Avatar out, and it's just a great gif that we're going to add. That's what it's all about, the great gifts. Worth it. Um, I, I'll go with, I liked Asami having, like, sort of rescuing Korra to a certain degree. That was a proactive thing for Asami to do, going back to Devendra's theory that I'm all about girls being better <laughs> than boys. So. And we haven't seen much of her this season, which was nice. I mean, people were, people yeah. were talking about not getting enough Asami this season. I, I, not enough Asami this season. Just make a t-shirt. Like. <laughs> uh, Devendra? Wait. I think uh, I, I like the fact that Korra and Zaheer's first confrontation really is, you know, in, in the spirit world on a meditative plane, just talking, talking things out. That was really interesting, even though like he had his whole plan to kidnap her during that time. I thought that was a really good way to approach uh, these characters. It was like that, the coffee scene in Heat. Right. Mm. Like the two people who have been circling each other the whole time. I love that. They just sit down and talk. It's like, hey, what's up? I'm going to get you eventually, man. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Uh, That's great. And, and for me, uh, three very quick things. One, I'm an ex-United Forces operative named Ting Ting. And my love has been taken by Dr. Razor. Uh, <laughs> great line. I'm really hoping Dr. Razor is the, is the big bad of book four. Um, we could only be so lucky. I really liked the guy in the Earth Kingdom, the bar owner. And this is just like more Western tropes. The guy who owns the bar, he just like, he they he told me I had the, the worst drinks in the Earth Kingdom. And he was right. Sad face. Um, <laughs> and um, oh, I can't, or the, we didn't even talk about the Nuktuk fans. The Nuktuk fans. There's so much. Wonderful. Uh, and, I love how Ai Wei goes into hiding without changing anything about his appearance. That's brilliant, guys. Yeah. <laughs> It's, hey, he didn't think anyone followed him. It's not his fault. Uh, also, we we have to give a shout out to Squeaky Rags. The appearance of the music cue Squeaky Rags over the uh, Pi Show uh, game. I, I I can't help but think it's a nod to Republic City Dispatch, which it is definitely not. But well, let's, no, take, no. let's take the glory. Episode we are have been digital Cora since forever. It, uh, we're all come. No, I don't know. It was nice to hear our. It's nice to. Hear- <laughs> It was nice. It was just nice. Um, well, thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. Why don't we tell people where we can find, uh, where they can find us on the internet. Devendra? You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Devendra. I write about tech and video at venturebeat.com, and I podcast about movies and TV at slashfilm.com. Joanna? Uh, you can find me most days on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. I do a TV-only podcast called The Station Agents. And I will be subbing in for Dave on Fighting in the War Room through the month of August. Oh, my God. Dave? 
Uh, I'm DA7E on Twitter at latino-review.com. I write about superhero movie news and Star Wars rumors. And yeah, I'm going to take some time off from podcasting, but it's going to be fantastic over at fightinginthewarroom.com. And I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet and put everything on my Tumblr, which is mattpatches.com. And I actually recap Cora at screencrush.com. And uh, I am on Fighting in the War Room, the, the podcast with Joanna now. And Dave will miss you, but you'll be back soon, I hope. And uh, that's about it. So until next week, everyone, farewell. <laughs>